Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them up for Ezra chapter 9. We are finishing the book of Ezra tonight. I said that last week, but we actually will do it tonight. Um, I was so close to just going on to um, Nehemiah. I felt like we had kind of covered Ezra, and we just had them last two chapters, and we kind of got into it a little bit last week. And I thought, oh, I think we, we're in the same area. Let's just go on to Nehemiah. And I studied, and I prepared for Nehemiah today, chapter 1. And I just taught it not that long ago, and uh, I don't know, about 4 o'clock today. I went back, and I looked at Ezra, and I was like, there is one remaining topic in the book of Ezra we just cannot skip. So we're going to hit it tonight. We're going to hit it hard. I'm looking around the room. I see couples and I see others. And so it's it's a kind of a, it's a marriage dating topic. So if you're already married, then you're, you know, it's kind of more single. But maybe if you're already married, you have kids, you have others in your circle. Um, it's maybe for your family and encourage your family. If you're single in here today, this is definitely for you and a super important topic um, that as as believers in Jesus, we um, we just have to really, really obey and abide by is, is the bottom line. Now, I, 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 it's so different here in Utah. It, it's really a challenge here in Utah. We live in a county that's less than 1% evangelical Christian. And really, you know, honestly, you have to go almost outside the country to find other places that's less than, than 1% evangelical Christian. So the um, our missionary, Jeremy Bear, he's a kid from, that kid from Ogden and um, started a Calvary Chapel up there, and they recruited him to move to um, Hungary to run the Calvary Chapel Bible College. And then he since has, they closed the Bible College in Hungary. Now Jeremy and uh, his wife are in um, the country of Serbia doing ministry as full-time missionaries, and we support him. His information's out there. I guess some of you guys know him, and you remember Jeremy Bear, um, Jeremy and Stacy Bear. But he has this brochure, and on his brochure he advertises that this this area in Serbia is zero point like seven six percent evangelical Christian, and then and then our demographic for Tooele, if you look it up, is zero point seven six percent evangelical Christian. Now it doesn't mean that it's ninety nine percent LDS. I think if you look at the demographic, and I forget, I don't have it like on me right now, but I've used it. I, I used it a lot more when I first moved here, but. There's a really um, good website that, that's specific for demographics around the United States that does a really good job with these numbers. Um, and where we're like, I think, I think on paper anyways, we're about 79% um, LDS, and then that left about 21% to fill in every other category. But the category of evangelical Christian was less than 1%. But, you know, for us, it means that's 99 out of 100 people that need Jesus, you know, and so... We, we have that, but it, when it comes to finding a bride or, or a groom, then it's a different kind of dynamic, you know, and I know for my, my I've raised three boys here, and, you know, it, it, it was always difficult because of this topic I'm going to share tonight. So let's just get into it, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. You may already. So we're, we're at the end of Ezra. Now, as you guys know, and, and I've, I've, I've beat this a little bit, but I want to kind of get a running start here. Um, we're in the post-exilic books. This this happens after Daniel, and if you have to go way farther in your um, Bible to get to Daniel, when we get to the next book, Nehemiah, it's the last book chronologically in the Old Testament. So um, we know that Malachi is the last book, but, but Nehemiah actually chronicles the last time period before the 400-year gap leading into the New Testament. So we're right here, Ezra, and there's like a nine-year gap between Ezra and Nehemiah, so we're right there. We're after Daniel. Um, the 70 years of captivity, Daniel read in Jeremiah that they were going to um, see in, in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Um, Jeremiah 29, 29 is a famous chapter. I'm going to share that with you guys here in a minute. That is um, the encouragement that um, Daniel received from Jeremiah was the instructions that God gave to the people to um, build houses and to settle. And they were going to be there for a while. And that he had a plan for them, and he was going to restore them. That was the encouragement to them going into that 70-year captivity. Well, after the 70 years, um, the, they went back to Jerusalem, which was a wasteland. And it doesn't take long. You know, and um, Pastor Darrell was sharing that he, he grew up in the what, 60s and 70s in Kansas as a farmer in central Kansas. And in the 30s, they had, um, it was called the Grapes of Wrath. Anyone familiar with that? It was a big dust storm, dust bowl. That, that killed all the farms in the, in the Midwest here in the United States. And farmers fled. And just in 30 years, he said some of these farms would, would have weeds growing through the houses and up past the top of the houses. And just it looked like 
you know, it was a million years and it was what 30 years did. So you can imagine 70 years of the land sitting in waste, what it would have been like as they went back to Jerusalem. And so they went back in waves and God called a guy um, here in the book of Ezra in the beginning by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the first wave that went back. And as they went back, they begin to rebuild the temple and they rebuilt the worship center. And then Ezra came in about chapter 6 here. And then when Ezra went back, he was in charge of rebuilding the spiritual welfare in Israel. Now they had the buildings, but they were still not like going to church, studying the word, doing um, the spiritual uh, prescriptions that God had laid out for God's people to worship. There was sin involved. And so he goes back to restore the spiritual condition in Israel as God called him, the priest, Ezra. And in order to do that, he had to deal with sin. And, and there was a specific sin that the people were guilty of that Ezra has to deal with. And they have to deal with it head on. And, and is the case in any, in any place, you know, is that if we're going to grow spiritually, each one of us individually, we have to deal with our sin. That we have to keep our hearts and get our hearts and lives right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, you know, we'll grow together. And really for all of us as a church, as a movement here in Tooele, that it's something that God uses each one of us to grow, to share our faith, to be a part of what God wants to do here, to minister, to reach out. And, and we're, we're not going to do that effectively unless we first deal with the sin in the camp. And so um, this is what Ezra is doing. He's going in, in this, these chapters specifically. He's going to have to deal with the sin that, that Israel is again guilty of. And, you know, it's a little ironic because they were in captivity because of sin and idolatry and some of the same things they're doing here. They go into sin for, uh, into captivity for 70 years. One of the things God pre- uh, predicted, I don't know if that's a good word, God prophesied was that um, the, the, the um, idolatry that was taking place in Israel prior to the 70 years captivity, that they wouldn't um, go back into that. And it, it cured them of that. You don't see that in Israel's history after the 70 years um, where they were following the, the idols and the, um, the pagan idolatry of the, the nations that, that surrounded them. So, but they still did have some sin. So let's look at it. Chapter 9, it says, And when these things were done, the leaders came to me, Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abomination. And here are these same groups, right? We read these all through the Old Testament. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Flashlights, the Termites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And so you'll see that. I'm going to sh- uh, share with you in, um, in, in um, Deuteronomy, and you'll see that same group there. Now, it says they have not separated themselves. The word holiness, the word holy means to separate and to separate oneself. That's what it means, holiness is. And God has called us as a holy people, which means we're to be separate from the world. Jesus said that we're in the world, but not of the world. And so there needs to be a separation from those things um, uh, uh, of the world. And so we have to separate ourselves from the world and connect ourselves to God. And so that was not taking place. There was not this separation. And then it says in verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, that the holy seed is mixed with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders of the rulers have been foremost in this trespass. Hey, I'm going to take just a little parentheses break here. I want to share with you guys because I just, in Jeremiah, because I mentioned it in the intro, but in Jeremiah, in chapter 29, there's kind of a famous passage. How many of you guys know this passage right here? For thus says, oh, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Anybody have that bumper sticker? On their, on their fridge, something? Like that's an icon scripture, right? That's, that's Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Um, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But in this context, this was the, the verses that God gave the nation of Israel as they went into this 70 years. And God says in Jeremiah 29, I'm going to read just kind of the first 10 verses. It says, now these are the words of the, of the letter Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive to Jerusalem, to Babylon. And the letter was sent, verse 3, by the hand of Elijah, the son of Shaphan, the German, da, 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 sent to King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused you to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what he says. Listen, build houses and dwell in them. 
plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives, and begat sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Now, um, again, another parenthesis inside of my parentheses. This is the same concept that we live with today, right, in the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some people say like, well, you know, we, we expect the Lord to return. We're living in the last days and Jesus is coming. So if Jesus is coming, then I can charge my credit cards. I can do whatever I want. I can just live because Jesus is coming anyways. But that's not the concept, right? We, we still believe strongly that Jesus is coming at any moment. We got to be ready. But at the same time, the Bible says to, in the, in the meantime, you build houses, you plant, you plant vineyards, you, you occupy until I come and, and you live as, you know, as, we're on fire, you know, that, that, that he could come, but we still prepare and we live every day. You know, I, I like one pastor, he said, yes, Jesus is coming, but in the meantime, there's work to do. And, and we stay busy working. That's what God told them to do in their captivity in Babylon. He says in verse 7, and seek the peace of this city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says, so, 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 like, be good citizens. Pray for the peace of Babylon and, and pray for its people. And, and in the peace of Babylon, you're going to find peace because you're going to be in its midst. And then in verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are complete at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good toward you. And cause you to return to this place, which is Israel. And then 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that was the promise of where we are in Ezra, that they were going to come out with this promise of God's future and a hope. And he said, uh, verse 12, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And then my favorite verse in Jeremiah 29 is not 11, the icon verse, it's actually 13. It says, and you will seek me. And you will find me when you search for me with, I've taught this a million times, with, with all your heart. And it's so huge, you know, it's just, it's a trump card, right? Because I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, oh, I prayed the sinner's prayer and nothing happened. Or I read my Bible and I didn't understand it. Or I, I tried to seek God and he didn't answer me. And, and that's an excuse, right? And, and you can share with your friends or with people that, that use that idea, oh, I tried that and it didn't work. That, that the Bible says that if you seek, God promises that if you seek with all your heart, he will be found. And, and, the, and the problem is not that God didn't respond. The problem is that you didn't seek him with all your heart and with a sincerity of heart. But if you do that, if it's a promise for us too, that if, that if we'll seek God and we'll find him when you search for me with all your heart, in verse 14 says, And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And so that's the promise that kind of leads me into chapter 9, back to Ezra chapter 9. And then um, in verse 2, we get the the sin that, that they mix the holy seed, the holy seed, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of the land. So basically, um, spoiler alert, is that they were marrying um, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the flashlights, the termites, they were marrying their sons and daughters and they were intermarrying with the, with the Jewish people and it was forbidden heavily throughout the entire word of God. It's forbidden in the Old Testament, it's forbidden in the New Testament and it was a huge, it was one of the hugest stumbling blocks of the, of the nation of Israel in their entire history from Adam and Eve all the way through to the end. It was an area that Satan was relentless in his approach and in his attack and in different angles and you remember Balaam and Balak and that whole story and, and, and how Satan used that false prophet to come in and, and, and encourage the people and send the girls in. And, and he knew it would be trouble, right? He said, I can't curse the people, but God will have to curse them if they intermarry. So have your, 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 your pagan women just get all dollied up and run through the camp and offer themselves to the men. And then the men that won't refuse, then God will have to judge them. And exactly what happened. And, and all the way through Israel's history, it's a huge um, problem And so here it's happening again, and they can't move forward. They can't grow spiritually as Ezra's back there. He's, you know, conducting services and church, and he's doing things. But until they deal with this, look at the last verse, uh, last word of chapter 2. What does it say there? Last word of verse 2. Last word of verse 2. That's not difficult, folks. 
unfaithfulness. Yeah, your margin term is okay, unfaithfulness. What does your say? Trespass? It was trespass or unfaithfulness. And the New King James says trespass. Now, I just highlight that because the Bible uses the term your sins and trespasses. And there's kind of two different categories. The word sin is hamartia, and it's, a, um, it's an archery term. And, and if, you're, if you're trying to, sh- to, to, to hit the bullseye and you shoot ten arrows, and ten of them hit in exact, or nine of them hit exactly in the middle of the, the bullseye, and the last one misses by a hair, that's, that's hamartia, that's a sin. That's what a sin is. It's missing the mark is what the term literally means in English, missing the mark. And, and so we, we all sin, we all miss the mark. This word trespass is a, is a more aggressive word. This is where instead of aiming at the, the target and I'm trying to hit the bullseye and I miss a little bit and I sin, that I turn the other way and I don't even aim at the target or I, I willfully trespass, I willfully sin against God, I know um, what's right and I choose to do wrong. That's a trespass. And so what's going on here is a trespass. There's no way they didn't understand and know that, that it was forbidden from the Lord to, to engage in, in, in marrying and intermarrying outside of their, their faith. And so it says in verse 3, it says, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe, and I plucked out some of the hair of my head. You know, this is funny because in Nehemiah, we're going to get to Nehemiah next week in chapter 1, and Nehemiah does the same thing, but he tears out his enemy's hair. <laughs> he rips their hair out. Well, at least Ezra, he's tearing his own hair out of his head and his beard, and he sat down astonished. Now, you, you see this a lot in mourning and in repenting in the Old Testament. We don't find it in the New Testament. We're not supposed to rip our hair out, although you'll see it. Like in the Philippines, they have a, a ceremony every year, and they, they crucify, they literally crucify themselves, or you'll see the thing where people will whip themselves till they're bleeding, you know, trying to impress or please God, and it's, it's a pagan practice. It wasn't of God in that intention, but... But here in mourning, you did see that, where they would sit in sackcloth and ashes. But the whole idea was was you created some discomfort in your flesh. And, and um, you know, just like fasting today, we found the same practice of fasting. When you fast and you deny yourself, um, you deny your flesh, it creates discomfort. And it, it encourages you to pray, reminds you of spiritual things. It, it encourages your mourning and your, your devotion to God. And so here we see this, and we see this all the way through the Old Testament. Like I said, this one's a little bit different. Usually it's, it's, it's in sackcloth and ashes, but Ezra goes all out here. He rips his garments, plucks his hair out of his head and his beard, and he sits down astonished. Now, I think was he was, he was literally just, his heart was broken over the sin of the people. And again, you know, that's kind of like a, like a um, barometer for our own spirituality, and, and you know, I don't know how well we do that. And you know, like, do, you, do we, the Bible says to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and, and certain things nationally that they should break our heart. When we see the sins of abortion, when we see the sins of um, these things that, that, that we li- literally legitimately have a broken heart over the sins of our nation, of our people. And, and what you'll find biblically, too, in Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra and the Old Testament, New Testament, is that when, when, they're, when they're repenting of the sins, John, in the New Testament, it's, it's a we, even though they're not guilty of that sin because they just identify with the sins of the nation and the sins that break God's heart. And so here Nehemiah, who's not even guilty of this sin, he didn't commit this sin, he's going to use the term we, and, and we have, and we have sinned. And that's the idea that, you know, Lord, repent as a nation, that we have sinned as a nation. We have, um, you know, and ultimately, the, the Bible says that, that, that the buck stops in the house of God. That's with us. You know, and we, we can't expect the world to behave a certain way. They're, they're in the world. We, we should expect them to sin and live a certain way that's, that's, that's ungodly. It shouldn't shock us. It's, it's within the house of God where the responsibility starts. It's, the onus is on us to be a people that are different, to pray, to make a difference. And, you know, the, the Bible says in Second Chronicles chapter 7, again, in the call to prayer, it says, if who, if who, if my people who are called by my name, if they'll humble themselves and repent, then I'll turn and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and heal their land. If my people, who are called by my name, and so again, a responsibility on us to be um, praying through things, to have broken hearts over the, the sins of our nation, and to to want to see a, a difference. In verse four, it says, "Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive." And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. 
And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, and having torn my garments, my robe, I fell on my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And so, you know, uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he prayed the same way, on his knees with his hands raised. And, and here in Ezra, he, he's on his knees with his hands raised to the Lord. His eyes are open. You know, if I said to you guys right now, let's pray, what do you guys do? We all do it. You know, I try to, I try to break the habit a little bit, you know, and I try to look up sometimes when it's time to pray. But the, the funny thing is, in the Bible, there's lots of different postures recorded for prayer. The only one that's not recorded is hands folded and eyes closed. You know where that started? That started in Sunday school. It's the only way you get the kids from, like, hitting each other and beating, you know, and playing when it was time to pray. So you tell the little kids to fold their hands and close their eyes so you can keep them focused on prayer. But, again, this is kind of our how we think we're supposed to pray. But it's, it's funny. It's the only one in the Bible that's not listed. Lots of different ways. Standing, kneeling, um, bowing, laying, eyes open. Um, Jesus prayed lots of different ways. And so... Um, you know, it's okay to have your eyes. And here he's on his knees. I have a picture uh, of me in the Garden of Gethsemane because uh, where Jesus was and near the area where Jesus would have prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, on my knees with my hands raised because um, that's the way that Jesus did it. And here you see Ezra, the same thing. He's on his knees with his hands raised. Um, you know, in prayer too, just it's just practical. Just make it practical. If, you, if you're in the habit of, you know, kneeling on your bed with your eyes closed and, you know, if you're anything like me, that prayer don't last very long. Or if you get in bed and then just then start trying to pray, yeah, that's that's a good that, that's a good practice if you need some sleep, because you'll be asleep fast. The only way I can, you know, the way I love to do it is in my jacuzzi. It's pretty hard to fall asleep in a jacuzzi, and so. But anything you can walk and pray, you can stand and any, any anything that, or, or or put some music on while you're praying. Put some worship music on the background or do something to encourage where you just don't end up falling asleep when it's time to pray. And so he's there, he's kneeling. And in verse 6, and it says, I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt have grown up to the heavens. And so, again, you know, there's a sincerity here in Ezra's heart, you know, and again, not, not, not to be um, putting a guilt trip on any of us, but an encouragement that, that we see this heart of Ezra, who's a priest, he's a pastor, he's a leader, he's a shepherd, he, he, he genuinely loves God's people, and he's broken over the condition. And, and how, how does he respond to that? Like, like how, how should we respond? Well, we, we, we can't necessarily go and, and, and stop people from, from sinning, and, but, but if our hearts are broken, one thing we have that's of value and is effective is prayer. And I think we, we kind of downplay it a little bit or all, you know, and then what does the world say about it? All you guys do is pray about it. What does that do? Well, it does everything. It changes something. But here he has the weapon, the spiritual weapon that God's given him. His heart is broken over the condition of the people and their sin. And, and, and it genuinely just moves him to pray, to get on his knees. He won't even lift his eyes or his face to heaven because he's broken. His heart is broken. And he's crying out to God. And he's going to get some results, too. In verse 7 it says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty for our iniquities. We have, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the king of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to, to humiliation as it is to this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a peg in his holy place to our God, may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. And so just praising the Lord, he's seeking God, he, he's encouraging the Lord, he's saying, God, your grace is, is great, that you're, you treat us um, better than we deserve, that you're not punishing us according to what we deserve, and, and God, you're good, your grace is good, um, you've given us a remnant. The New Testament says that, that God has given you a way out, and that, that in any sin or any struggle that you have, we, we're without excuse because there's freedom in Christ, and it says that God has given you a way out. And here he says, Lord, you've given us a remnant. You've given us a way out. And then, again, just I've already kind of talked about it, but um, through all of this, he, he uses himself saying that we are guilty and we have sinned. And um, yet, personally, he wasn't guilty. But, again, you'll see this through most of the consistently, like through Daniel's prayer and Nehemiah's, other places in the Old Testament, New Testament. In verse 9, he says, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of our kings of Persia to revive us 
and to repair the house of God, to rebuild ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which, which you command by the land, which you are entering to possess an unclean land with the uncleanness of the other people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to the another with impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. So, again, this is, this is a huge issue, right? This is a huge issue in the nation of Israel, in, in really in our, um, in our lives today, in our Christian living today. It's still a huge issue that, that needs to be um, obeyed, really, because it comes down to a trust issue, ultimately. We'll talk about that. In verse 14, it says, Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that they would be, there would be no remnant or survivor? Now, a million things going on here. Um, Number one, the, the, there, is a, there is a satanic underlying attack that, that Satan, again, has used all the way through. And part of it was to dilute the bloodlines, to corrupt the bloodlines of, of Israel, of the remnant. And ultimately, why would Satan want to do that? Because his attack was, was always on Messiah, was on coming Messiah. Everything he did through the Old Testament, everything he did through his attacks was tried to, to thwart the Messiah from coming, from Jesus being able to fulfill the prophecy. And with enough of this... Um, intermarrying outside of their faith and race religion that um, um, it, it would it would thwart the plan of Messiah coming so it was a satanic plan now let me just highlight this really quickly the Bible uh, the Bible doesn't forbid interracial marriage that's it, within the context of the Jews it kind of it seems that way that's kind of what is going on but the term you know Jewish even today right it's it has a dual meaning like when someone says Jewish you're not really sure are they talking Jewish ethnically, or are they meaning that that's the, the religion that they practice? Because the term means both. So in Israel, you have secular Jews and you have religious Jews, and 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 yet we use the term kind of synonymously, um, but it, it can mean both, right? And, and so, but in the context here of, of of Old Testament, it was a race issue that the Jews were supposed to marry Jews. Um, in the New Testament, the context is within our faith, within our religion that we're supposed to marry those inside of our faith that are believers in Jesus Christ that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and then again there's no prohibition no forbidding of any kind of interracial marriage or that kind of thing in the New Testament um, that's different Let, let's just look at it real quick so you have it second Corinthians chapter 6 turn there with me if you will I'll start in verse number 11 second Corinthians 6. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Here it is, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are a temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look at verse 14, same verse. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So the issue is believer-unbeliever, being, we call it equally yoked. Now, equally yoked could be a lot of things. You know, equally yoked doesn't, even in the context of two people who, who, who say they're Christ followers, maybe one, um, their, their vision in Christ is to be a missionary in Africa, and the other one's vision is to go to church on Christmas and Easter. That can be an unequally yoked situation, so even within the, the family, but... Um, Marrying inside of our faith is God's plan and will for your life. You know, um, and like I said, you know, I, 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 my heart goes out, right, to the young people here and our young Christians because 
you know, they, they, there's just very few Christians. They're, they're harder to find. But God is faithful, and it does become a trust issue. And I've watched some young people here since I've been here make mistakes. And, um, and the conversation that I've had with them is, you know, trust God. God will, will has a perfect person for you, and um, God, God will bring it, and you have to trust the Lord. And usually what happens is Satan, again, this is, a, this is, this is Satan's plan, even for us, even for the church. It's a, it's a way that Satan will use to destroy and um, loot the church and destroy young people's lives. And, and people, I don't know, like it, it, I know it's a tough topic because it seems harsh and it seems almost, um, I don't know, like, um, what's the right word? I don't say racial, racial, but it's not. I mean, it's, it, it seems harsh to, to say, oh, well, we're not supposed to marry outside of our faith. But, you know, and, and when people are young, usually what happens, what I've experienced here a couple times too is where um, neither one is really walking in their faith. One has a background of LDS and one has a background of Christian, but neither one is really practicing and they're doing the same things and they get married and, um, and then they have kids and they settle down, they grow up a little bit and, and now it's time to baptize the kids. And then both want to go back to their, 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 their faith of, of their roots and they're, now they're, they're fighting over where to baptize and what faith are they going to baptize and what faith are they going to promise. And they're not 21-year-old kids anymore partying. They're in their, their 30s or late 20s and they're settled down and they're raising a family and now they have all kinds of trouble trying to decide how to raise this family. And usually what happens, right, is so many, they, they come back to their faith or they want to go back to their roots. And it just, you know, it just creates a lot of problems. It will destroy lives. And, um, and God, God is, God, God's word is pretty clear, right? He, he forbids it. And so, or, or Satan will bring in a counterfeit, you know, and I see that in some young people's lives. And they meet somebody and, you know, the other person is, you know, not a believer, but they're nice and they're great and they're, they're, they're really cool. And they said they'll come to church with me and, um, you know, and, and you're hoping that we, we say there's no missionary dating. Like you don't you don't date somebody who's not a believer, hoping they'll become a, a Christian down the road. It's just going to be more trouble. They may fake fake Christian, and we see that all the time too in the church over the years. You know, where one or the other is not really a believer, not really walking with the Lord, and you know they'll come until until they're married, and and then you know and then they stop coming, and there's this problem down the road. You know, I always, I always ask people like, what where were they going to church when you met them? Where was their walk the day you met, you know? And that's usually an indication. If they can't tell you, like, I go to this church, this is my pastor's name, this is the book of the Bible we're studying in our church or whatever, like, where there's a little context that they're actually walking with the Lord at the time that you, you know, you met them. And, you know, and so, anyways, so that's the New Testament um, scripture. Let, let me share with you guys, again, this is not a New Testament, Old Testament thing. This is just the will of God for us, Right? And then um, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, so you can turn there if you want or I'll just read it. But um, I I had this uh, young man here in our church and he actually went to Bible college for um, two years, came home and uh, and he met a girl who wasn't a believer, she wasn't going to church. And and I was talking to him and he was telling me excuses and stuff. And and I remember the conversation I had with him was just that, hey, you, you know, you can trust the Lord. God will... God has somebody for you if you wait, and 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 it, it's an issue of trust. And when you can go through the Old Testament, you can see stories where, you know, where how God brought Isaac to Rebecca, Rebecca to Isaac, and the different stories through the Old Testament where supernaturally God brings the the right person at the right time. And I say, really, your issue is just a lack of trust. You don't believe that God can do it here, but God can do it, and He will do it. And the thing is, too, like we don't have to make excuses. For, for our feelings or our needs. Like, it's okay, like, for young people, for any people, right? I don't care what stage you're in, that you want somebody, you want a relationship, you want companionship. Like, God gave you that desire. The desire's not wrong. The desire is is godly, and it, and, it, and God will fulfill it, and he knows He knows you have it, and he gave it to you. And so I think sometimes we feel like we have to mask that that desire that we have to, to have a husband or a wife or to have those feelings that, you know, the Bible says it's better to marry than burn with passion, and and, and, you know, I encourage people, too, that God is compassionate in the issues because he gave you those desires. He gave you desire for intimacy. He gave you desire for companionship. And he'll meet and fulfill those desires. The Bible says that if you seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then what? Then all these things will be added unto you. And all these things are included, those, those, those feelings, those desires that we have as, as humans. You know, and, and Christ knows those and he gave those to us and they're not wrong. But God will do it. And again, that's usually the advice. 
you know, that we don't necessarily seek um, that relationship. We seek God, and then God fulfills those desires and those needs. And so seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now look what God said way back in the Old Testament in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess at and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, here we go again, right? The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. The, how do you make this? It's like you can't make this stuff up. The Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the seven nations greater and mightier than you. Now verse 2. And when the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, no sh- nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. And so, again, the, the prohibition in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, the prohibition in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, 6. And, and so do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers that um, trust the Lord, God knows your needs, he's going he's gonna to meet them. Amen? Did we cover it, or do I need to keep talking about it? I'll stop talking about it, but the, the, the chapter is going to keep talking about it. So um, it says in verse 15, it says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left as remnant as to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Chapter 10, now while Ezra was praying, everybody say praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and women gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. So um, chapter 10, verse 1, underline the word while, because the, the victory came while Ezra was praying. He was praying, he was broken, and as he was praying, um, God was answering his prayer. God was showing up. The, the group is praying for Peter to be released from prison. And as they're praying, Peter knocks on the door. And they, they don't believe it's Peter because he's in prison. And they say, no, he's in prison. We're praying for him to be released. It's not Peter. A, a, but as he was praying, as Ezra was confessing, he was confessing what? Like he, he wasn't guilty of sin, but he was confessing the sins of the nation. And he included himself in that. And they showed up. And they were also broken. And so God was... Um, working in their hearts and lives, and in the presence of God, there was this conviction of sin. I, um, I, uh, you guys know my story about my Aunt Lydia? You guys remember that part of my testimony? I have an Aunt Lydia. She, she's home with the Lord now. And I always share that she was a prayer warrior. And, and she prayed for me for many, many, many years. And she, she had a ministry of prayer. And she would pray at 2 in the morning till like 4 in the morning. And then she'd wake up again at 6 and pray for another hour. And she was just an amazing prayer warrior. And I know a lot of the reason why um, I'm a believer today and a Christ follower is because my Aunt Lydia prayed for me. You know, you ever have anybody say to you, like, I- I'm praying for you or I'll pray for you? Like, sometimes you're not really sure when people say that to you. Like, it's kind of like Christianese. But there's certain people in your life that when they say to you, I- I'm praying for you, it- it's so encouraging and moving because you know these certain folks are really called and really gifted and they actually are praying for you. I have a couple in my life. And so when you guys tell me, oh, I'm praying for you, Pastor Chris, I'm like, yeah, right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but like Joe Comparsi, he's a, he's a guy from back home, and he's a, he's been here a couple times. He's like three foot seven, and he's a he's a fisherman, like Jesus. Um, but but Joe's like I call him the world's greatest fisherman. He ran all the fishing ministries back home. But he he was called by God, and he, and since I've been in Bible college, he's been a friend, and he and he and he started telling me over the years. And we coached baseball together. We did a lot of life together. We ran some ministries together, and. And he would say, he would say, Chris, I don't know why, but I knew why. But he would say, I don't know why, but God keeps having, I can't take you off my prayer list. I wrote you on my prayer list one time, and I, every time I pray, my prayer list changes, but God won't let me take your name off my prayer list, and I, I'm praying for you. And, and, and he said, I don't know why, but I'm still praying for you. And then like a year later, he would tell me, yeah, I'm still praying for you, and I can't, and he's like, I don't know why. And I'm like, oh, I know why you have to pray for me, but... Um, and, but when Joe says to me, I'm praying for you, like, and he has for years, and God has called him to that, and I'm so blessed by it. But when, you know, I know he prays for me, literally, like, prays for me. So it's, it's so encouraging. You know, my Aunt Lydia was the same way. She was a prayer warrior, and she prayed for me. And I, I call, and she passed away about a year ago. And um, and I hadn't spoke when, when my Aunt Sharon passed away on Christmas Day. I called my cousin Lorenzo. 
my Aunt Lydia's son, who lives in Pico Rivera, and, and he hadn't heard the news yet, so I called to give him the news, and, um, and I, said, I said, Lorenzo, uh, will you pray for us? And he said, I'm always praying for you. And, and again, it's just that, you know, you know when he says that. And he, and he began to share with me just a little bit of, of what God is doing in his life. He's walked with the Lord. His mom is the most godly woman I've ever met. And, um, he's walked with the Lord all of his life. But, you know, he's had a, a, you know, off and on like the rest of us walk with the Lord. But six months ago, he had a near-death experience. And he was, he said, he, he wears a CPAP for sleep. And, and it, it shut down in the middle of the night and it was suffocating him. Ended up in a seizure. And um, he said he went to sleep and he woke up in the emergency room like three days later. And... Um, and he just shared that, that, that God, um, he had an experience with the Lord in that time. And um, he said he woke up and he, and he thought he was in heaven. And he said he woke up and he was mad because he was still alive and he was in the ER. And he's like, oh, I'm still here. You know, and, and, and God had showed up. And he said that, um, he was telling me that, you know, he, he's been just spending the last six months so on fire for Jesus and just praying all the time. And he said, I wake up at three in the morning and I, and God just has me up and I'm praying. And he said, I'm always praying for you guys. And praying for your family and praying for your mom and I'm praying for the rest of our family. Same exact words my Aunt Lydia would use. And, and, and he's just sharing to me how God has given this mantle of prayer that my Aunt Lydia had to him. And that's just so Bible. That's so God. That's so Jesus. And, and he said he's just taken up the ministry that his mom had for all those years. And supernaturally, the Holy Spirit is doing this work in his life. And he's sharing with me on the phone. And I'm like, wow, I'm so moved. And I'm like, man, I want to catch what you have, and I want to give that to the world. I want to give that to my church. And he's like, he's like, just, it's so contagious, and I spend time with the Lord. And, and he said, when you're in the presence of God, he said, it's not like you ask questions and you get answers. And he said, when you're in the presence of Jesus, you know the answers. You, you're quickened. Your heart is quickened to the things that God is saying to you. And, and that's what it says in the Bible. It says that there'll come a day when you'll know him as you're known. And he says, it's just like, it's not even like, I, you know, I'm asking a bunch of questions, getting a bunch of answers. I'm just, I'm in prayer, and I know the things that the Lord is speaking to me. And God's presence has been showing up. And, and you know, it, it, it is, prayer is labor. It's work, you know. Like, to get up at 3 in the morning, like, physically get out of bed and be up till 5 in the morning praying and seeking the Lord. It's physical labor, and it's sleep loss. But what happens is, as you, you put in the time, and you do it God's way, it's not to get up and earn something. You get up because you love Jesus and you're, you're addicted to his presence and to the feeling and to the, the, the presence of God, and, and it just grows. It's like a snowball rolling downhill. And, and, it's, and, and, you know, and, and at times maybe you know, God's not going uh, uh, to bless a, a bless me session. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. But if you're there to bless God, if you're there to, to worship the Lord through your praying, through just getting in the presence of God and worshiping him, um, it, it's just, it's radical. And I, I just want us to catch a piece of that. You know, I was telling my cousin, like, man, I want, I want a piece of what you got in my life. You know, I want to I know that. I have seasons of it, and I've felt it at times, but just to be that consistent. And, and he's like, man, I don't want to watch football anymore. I don't want to watch basketball anymore. He's like, I just want to pray. I want to spend time with Jesus. I want to be in the Word. And um, so contagious and so um, powerful. And so, Again, I, I share that because I think it fits. I think it's what I, we're seeing here with, with Ezra, exactly. If you're following kind of as we're reading through this and all this conversation about Ezra fasting and praying and being in the presence of God and seeking God. And then now we get to chapter 10 and we're seeing results. We're seeing people are showing up in the middle of his prayer and they're weeping bitterly. And in verse 2 it says, And then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, and the son of Elam spoke up to and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now underline that, right? Because there's always hope in Jesus. Okay, you have to know that. You have to share that. You have to believe that. that you're never without hope in the flesh because there's always hope in Jesus, right? There's always hope in Jesus. And Satan's plan is to rob your hope. Satan's plan in suicide is, is to make you completely without hope and, and, and we have to constantly know that there's hope. There's always hope in Jesus. And so that's what they say there. In spite of these sin, there's hope in Jesus. There's hope in Israel. In verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and to those who tremble at the commandment of our God and to let it be done according to the law or the word. Yeah, it's that serious. 
Like the, the result here, like the plan that Ezra and the people come up with is that all of these, these Jews who have married pagan wives and had pagan kids, they have to divorce their wives and put away the kids. Again, that seems harsh, right? It seems a little bit ungodly or out of line, but it's that serious. God is that serious about who we marry and about who, you know, about who we do life with. And so they, they, they're going to have to do it. In verse 4 it says, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And so verse 4 is the people talking to Ezra and basically saying, Ezra, we trust you. Ezra, we empower you to, to be able to deal with this sin. And so the people who showed up in the middle of Ezra's prayer, they're, they're saying to their, their priest, their, their leader, they're saying, go and deal with this. And Ezra, we're going to follow your lead. We're going to allow you the, the flexibility and the power that you're going to need. Um, so arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leaders in the, of the priests, the Levites, and all of Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. And then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jeho- Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. I should read these before I preach this, huh? And when they came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for they mourned because of the guilt from the from those of captivity. And they issue a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must, that must is a strong Bible word, whenever you see it, Jesus said you must be born again. He said I must needs go through Samaria. And so if God's word or Jesus says must, guess what? You must. So they must gather at Jerusalem that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, and all his prophets would be confiscated. All his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So basically an excommunication um, type of situation where they, they are now excommunicated from the family of God, the house of God, the worship of God. We have that, again, precedence in the New Testament. There are times where God's word calls us to excommunicate folks or to remove them from fellowship. And so this is a case he said, if you guys don't show up, we're going to have to remove you from fellowship. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. And it was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because it was raining really hard. So funny, right? Like, so they're in an open square there in the, in the temple where they're building and they're meeting and it's just pouring down rain on them. And they're trembling because they're afraid of God's judgment and of what God's going to do. And then they're trembling because it's cold and it's raining really hard. And then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. I I don't know why the heavy rain. Maybe the heavy rain just, again, to show the the seriousness of what's happening here. It's like they call this meeting. We're going to take your property. You're going to be excommunicated if you don't show up. They know what's coming down. The people have already come to Ezra and said, Hey, this is for you to deal with. In verse 4, you can deal with this and, and... you know, be of good courage and do it. And if they're going to have to divorce their wives and leave their children, if they had children with them, and, and yet they, they show up and it's raining so heavy and they're going to meet outside, but it, it wasn't a case no matter how hard it was raining that they that they could cancel this meeting. You think maybe, you know, they'd say, okay, well, we'll cancel this meeting, we'll convene tomorrow or something, but they didn't. They met. And then Ezra, the verse 10, the Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Everybody say his will. And separate yourselves from the people of the land and from pagan wives. Then they all assembled, answered, and Ezra said with a loud voice, yes. You know, it's always a good thing to say yes to Jesus. Any part of your life, just say yes to Jesus. That's that's salvation. That's That's, that's fruit. Yes. Yes, Jesus. As you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is it is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. So there's many many of us who are guilty and had to, and had to be dealt with. They're talking lots of divorces and putting aways. And, and verse 14, please let the elders, leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in the cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges 
of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. So just kind of practically, they're starting scheduling meetings, and they're going to have all of those that were taken pagan wives to meet uh, one at a time as they were going to come through. And it was going to take time to go through it as the, the, the elders were going to meet with each one of them on this matter. In verse 15, only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaiza, the son of... They descended into captivity, a bunch of names. Verse 16, then descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the 10th month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men um, who had taken pagan wives. So two months of, of meetings, and they questioned all the men. Are you going to comply? Are you going to follow and then verse 18 through 43 are the the list of the names i'm not going to read them to you um, you're welcome and then in verse 44 the last verse of the chapter says all these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children all right i can't leave this chapter without one more thing so don't close your bibles just yet please turn with me if you will to first corinthians chapter 7 and i just want to be very clear on a couple things the bible says that god hates divorce okay the Bible um, forbids, um, obviously, um, abortion and, and that it's sin and it's murder. But listen, I want to be very clear on two things. God does not hate those who have been through divorce and God does not hate those who have who've had an abortion. God, both of those are forgivable sins and, 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 rest, and people can be restored and have perfect relationship and be in the perfect will of God. Um, there's very strong language when God says God hates divorce. When you read through the, the language of, of Jesus dealing with that, he says that, you know, you'll sin if you if you remarry and these things. And I've had those conversations and it's very strong language, but it's in the context where Jesus said, if your right arm causes you to sin, then then cut it off. And if your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. Now, none of us as Christ followers have a relationship with Jesus would believe that what Jesus was literally calling us to pluck out our right eye or cut off our right hand. That, that's not, that's not, just not there. It's not in the context. It's strong language to deal with the sin that, that God hates. And so God does hate the sin of divorce. He hates the sin of divorce, I believe, primarily because of the effect it has on the children. You know, and a husband and wife could probably deal in separating a lot easier, but the effect that it has on children, it's, and when you take um, a, a man and a woman, and, and they're married, and the two become one flesh, the only relationship um, that where you know between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and sisters and all the closest relationships only the bible says between a husband and a wife do the two become one flesh sexual intimacy is not just a physical act it's a spiritual act that literally physically joins two souls together it knits two souls together and that's why god only allows it between a husband and a wife if you take a husband and a wife who are who are joined together intimately, it's like taking two pieces of construction paper and you glue them together, and then you have children and you glue the children as the children are being born. It'd be like gluing the children on the outside of that construction paper, and you sit it out in the hot sun for as long as they're married, and then you try to have a divorce after seven years, ten years, and you have to try to separate those papers without without tearing. It's possible. There's going to be tearing that happens to the children and to the families. And that result, I believe, is what God hates, that pain that it causes his children, both the husband and the wife. And, and, and it's not God's first will. But God does not hate those who have been through a divorce. Don't, don't ever understand it, you know, when it's preached or when it's taught that. God is a God of forgiveness. And, and there's been many, 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 many wonderful, you know, restorations and healings. And God doesn't hate those who have been through divorce. Now, in the Old Testament... Um, the prescription was very strong, and it was put the wives away, put the children away. Now, both um, marrying outside of our faith is forbidden in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the New Testament does have a little different um, um, solution if you are already unequally yoked. If you're married outside of your faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the New Testament um, solution and, and godly prescription of how you're supposed to navigate moving forward. You know, because again, when I've talked about the subject of do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers, I always sometimes, not always, I, I usually will get the question from somebody, um, I'm married to a non-believer, am I in sin? And the question, is, the answer is no. Usually in that case, you were married to a non-believer 
maybe when you were a non-believer or two people were were both non-believers and they got married and one of them got saved. And now they're in a situation where one's a believer and one's not unequally yoked, light and darkness, what Corinthians forgives. But they're they're, they're not in sin in that situation. And so to navigate kind of the intricacies, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 7 lays it all out. It tells you exactly what to do, what not to do. Um, And I'll just kind of give you the skinny of it. If you're married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever wants to stay, that, that you have to stay in that marriage. You're not, you're not to divorce. We had a woman who, who started coming to church here. She got saved here, and, and her husband was not a believer and didn't want anything to do with church. And her husband's friend started telling him, don't let your wife go to that church because um, she's going to become a Christian, and people are going to start, they're going to tell your wife she has to divorce you and marry somebody from the church. And I said, no, that's not what we do. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're not supposed to divorce your husband who's a, not believe, who's a non-believer. You're supposed to stay with him. And, and by the conduct of the believing wife, he might become a Christian, is what the Bible says. Um, but it also says if, if the unbelieving partner wants to leave, it gets strong here. It doesn't say you can let them out. It says, it says you have to let them go. You have to then at that point. Get, get him out. So if you have a, 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 a believer and an unbeliever, one got saved, you know, later in the marriage, and the unbeliever wants to stay, that you're supposed to stay, and by the by the silent um, and good conduct of the wife, that, that one might get saved. But if they want to leave, then you have to let them out. Can we have a second? Can we just kind of read through this quick? It's only 16 verses. It says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, flesh, and spirit of perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us as we have wronged no one we have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together, to live together. Am I in the wrong place? First Corinthians 7. I kept saying second, huh? Sorry. First Corinthians 7. Okay. Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. We can have some fun with that verse. And verse 4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own. We think it's better. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So sex is not supposed to be used as a weapon in your marriage. In verse 6 it says, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all were even as I myself, but one has his own gift from God, in this case the manner, and another in that. But I say to you, the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, which is unmarried. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In verse 10, now to the married, I command, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But if she does depart, let her remain unmarried to be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So believing husband, unbelieving wife, and she wants to stay, she's willing to live with him, he's not to divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to stay with her or live with her, let her not divorce him. So, so we, and then it says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, listen, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So, um, and then in verse 15, it says, that, that's kind of deep theological thing. It gets into that verse right there about children, salvation, those things. But let's, let's not confuse it for tonight. But if, listen, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. That's a command in the Greek. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such case. But God is calling us to peace. So, um, so they're, they're released. A, 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 a Christian um, in a marriage is released from the marriage if the unbeliever wants to leave. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen? Is that clear as mud? All right, good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for, Lord, for your command, Lord. We thank you just for the practical wisdom there is in not being unequally yoked. And Lord, I pray. I pray for, uh, for our Christian 
uh, folks here in Utah, here in, here in our church, Lord, um, for our single people that just have a desire to, to find a godly woman or a godly husband, that, Lord, you would, you would provide. I pray for each of us to trust you, Lord, in this area, knowing that you will provide, God, and continue to seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that these things will be added unto us, God. And, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.